What is up, people? And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the New Generation Sports Talk Podcast. I am your host, EJ Stewart, and I'm excited to do this show this week. You get to recap all the awesome, crazy, ridiculous, unpredictable, unexplainable stuff that we saw in uh, the NFL Week 1 opening uh, opening games last week. A lot happened. Um, I said a lot of it was pretty crazy. A lot of it was inexplicable. But um, we're going to try to break it down as much, as much as we can on this show, as well as previewing what we will see in Week 2 with some big games happening, not just in the NFL and in college, uh, also in college football. Also this week, we're going to be talking about the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, of course, that happened last week. Grant Hill, Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, among the players uh, inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Of course, whenever there's Hall of Fame week or Hall of Fame uh, inductions, there's always the question, okay, well, who are the guys that are on the fringe that maybe should get in or will get in in, in recent years? So we have a list of guys we're going to go through, and we're going to try to determine whether or not we think either of these guys should be in the Hall of Fame. We'll do that later in the show. And this week, we're going to be debuting a brand new segment that I'm actually really excited about. Me and Kendall have talked about doing it for a while. We think we came up with a format that works, so we'll be debuting that after we talk about uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame. And then, of course, at the end of the show, as we always do, we'll have Kendall's court talking about uh, what Kendall found interesting this week. And, of course, Kendall joins me, uh, as always, this time uh, on campus at Temple. Kendall, what are you looking forward to talking about today? Well, for Kendall's court, I'm going to have a very interesting uh, topic because um, it's always great when you see somebody come out of retirement to try and make a comeback. You know, it's always interesting because you have guys that generally they're legends or former All-Stars that um, decide that they still have a little bit left in the tank. I remember Kurt Warner was talking about how he was ready to come back last year and play quarterback for a team. It's apparently it fell through, but he was he was very ready to come back. Um, well, there's somebody in the NBA that's playing a comeback. Uh, that should be very, very interesting to follow, so I'll get to that uh, in Kendall's court this week, but I'm excited for it. Always love a good comeback story. We'll see who that, car- that player is later on in the show. But let's start off the top of the show talking about week one. Um... I thought this was a really good week. Uh, I won't say really good. I I thought it was, I thought it w- it was a very intriguing week one. A lot of these games weren't that great. The weather didn't help in a lot of places. There were a lot of blowouts, a lot of sloppy football. But I think there was also some exciting storylines this week. You could talk about Aaron Rodgers. You could talk about the 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 first start of Sam Darnold's career. We could talk about um, the struggles of the Cowboys. We could talk about Fitz Magic in Tampa Bay. There's so much to get to. Uh, so much you could take away from this week. Kendall, what was your biggest takeaway from week one? It's, I mean, look, there's plenty. There's plenty to talk about. Um, I'm not really sure where you're going to go. But given that you're a Jet fan, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that possibility up to you. But I'm going to go with um, the NFC North is going to be really tough. Um because obviously I'm a Vikings guy, and the Vikings looked very, very good in a game that I wasn't entirely worried about. But when we, when we discussed the Vikings schedule early on, we knew that San Francisco was not going to be a cakewalk, and it, they pretty much they pretty much look like a cakewalk. Yeah, San Francisco looks like a team that doesn't 
they look like really the problem with when you sign a guy like Garoppolo that kind of money, you don't have really any other players around him. That's really what it looked like. It looked like he was he wasn't awful, but his supporting cast was so weak, especially after we talked about McKinnon. Yeah. the Jared McKinnon injury. That was a, they spent a lot of money on him being their best weapon and not having him, they looked very, very mediocre offensively. But uh the Vikings, Kirk Cousins looked excellent. Uh I thought the Bears looked very good for about three quarters um Sunday night and Khalil Mack just absolutely wrecked havoc wreaked havoc on Green Bay. Um in Lambeau Field, so they're not gonna be a team that's gonna go away. You know, I'm still not completely sold on Mitch Trubisky, but when you have a defense like they're going to have, and you have a player like Khalil Mack now that clearly wants to send a message to John Gruden and the Raiders that he is legitimately a top five player in the league, uh, Chicago will be dangerous. But the biggest story, I think, out of the NFC North had to have been that Packer Sunday night where um, Aaron Rodgers goes down. We're actually recording uh, Hero Talk. While we're watching the while I'm watching the game, yeah. But uh, Aaron Rodgers goes down. You know, resident new generation Packer fan Shamari is like <laughs> panicking while we're recording Hero Talk, and um, everyone thinks that Rodgers might be done. We're we're already talking about what is, what is, what will the Sean Kaiser Packers look like? And then I look up and I see Aaron Rodgers is back out there. I'm like, what the what happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like. What could have gone wrong? <laughs> uh, obviously, as an NFL fan, I was, glad, I was glad to see the Rodgers wasn't seriously hurt. But I can't help but lie that. Look, as a Vikings fan, I was already thinking, all right, now that we have the North one, uh, <laughs> you know, what what, what, will we, what will we be playing in the playoffs uh, in the divisional round? And I saw Rodgers, and I realized, ah, you know, we'll, we'll have to fight this season. So, um, Green, and then, look. When Rodgers came back, the thing that came in my head was, well, at least they'll lose this game. I Part of me was like, why is he even out there? They're down 17 points. Rodgers just got seriously hurt. What do they get out of putting him out there? Now you see why. I, obviously, I was the dope to not realize that when you put one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time out there, your team vastly improves and you give your team a chance to win in almost any circumstance. And that's what happened. And it was one of the more miraculous comebacks we've seen in a while um also can't forget about the lions who again you'll talk about the jets but real quick on matt patricia i do you i want to ask the question ej Mm -hmm. is matt patricia it's only in one game but is he evidence that maybe bill belichick's coaching tree is really terrible and that People will stop hiring from the Bill Belichick coaching tree after Matt Patricia. Matt Patricia, if this goes up in flames, like it very much looks like it will after you lose at home on Monday night to the two win Jets or whatever they were last year by thirty points. It's an interesting question because when you raged it, when you started to angle your way to that question, I tried to quickly think of: Has there ever been any successful Bill Belichick assistant? We run down the line. The only one. Isn't in the NFL. Is it in the NFL? Saban. Yeah. Yeah, Saban. He's the a, only one. And when he tried the NFL, he failed miserably. Right. I mean, Charlie Weiss. Charlie Weiss is another college guy. He failed. Yep. Um, Romeo Cornell. Romeo Cornell failed. Mangini failed. 
Josh McDaniels. Failed. Uh, who else? Obviously, Patricia. Bill O'Brien right now is Bill O'Brien. He's teetering on the hot. Yeah, he's holding on for dear life in Houston. Yeah, very good at Penn State. I mean, he was good at Penn State. I won't say very good, but good at Penn State given the circumstance. Um, and I guess that's it. And none of those guys. I mean, none of them. We count Mike Vrabel as part of the as part of the tree. I mean, I don't think he coached in New England. Played in New England. I, I no, I I wouldn't. I would consider him more like Houston. Well, yeah. I guess technically he's Bill O'Brien, but right. I mean that that's a whole other conversation of do you count yeah, other guys? I, part yeah, of the original I mean, he's like, I mean, if you gave me him, I would say I would I wouldn't fight you on it completely. But I mean, I, I he's never coached under Bill Belichick. But I mean, that yeah. is something to think about, and to me, it it, it raises a question, and I don't want to. I'll talk about. <laughs> Patricia for sure, but it is evident. It is important to say that it was only one game. I don't want to jump out the window completely, but it's it's kind of alarming to me how many people. It's not. I'm not saying this has anything to do with Bill Belichick in terms of like, oh, that means he's not as great a coach. None of that. I just think that the idea that you can get rub some of that New England magic uh, onto your franchise by just plucking whoever's assistants are. I mean, evidence shows that's that's never going to happen. It's never happened before. Does it, and does it maybe indicate, maybe not a weakness of Belichick, because, I mean, Belichick, obviously, I mean, there are plenty of people that feel like Belichick's more important to England than Brady is. I'm probably one of those people. But maybe it indicates that Belichick has a certain way of coaching that maybe, maybe those guys just don't do much. I, I mean, think the honest. issue with Belichick, as someone who, had a coach who coached under Belichick, who had a little bit of success, not a lot, but a little bit, Mangini. I think the issue that the Jets had was it's hard to do Bill Belichick things and not have Bill Belichick's credibility. Right. Bill Belichick goes about work a different way. He goes about what he demands of players in a different way. Um the way he wants guys to be selfless, the way he gets guys to buy into his message. When you have when you have the rings Bill Belichick has, when you have the pedigree Bill Belichick has, um, and he's uh, obviously legitimately a great coach too. Like he also is a great X and O's guy, obviously. But when you have that credibility, guys are much more willing to buy into that program. It's harder when you have no credibility. You're, all these guys we've mentioned started off as rookie head coaches. None of the guys we mentioned had ever had coached before, at least that I can remember. Um, so they all rookie head coaches, and they had zero credibility. Even like no, I don't think anyone cares if you or assistant or a team that won a Super Bowl. That's not for an NFL pro. That's that doesn't mean anything. So they come in with no credibility, and they're they're asking their players to do Bill Belichick things, and these guys looking at them like, who the hell are you? So do right. those guys buy in? Do those guys really uh, want to do the Patriot way? Uh, the Patriots are not necessarily a place where you know free agents in the prime of their careers have been like running to go over there. So it's not like you know guys are going there you know in the end of their career to try to get a ring and usually they play great. But that hasn't been like a destination that players have loved to play, and they've all some of them have complained about how Belichick cut them loose early, even if they respect them and love them like Randy Moss and a bunch of other great players. Uh, once any kind of issues arose about contract or playing time, he just got them the hell out of there. So 
Are you trying to bring that kind of stuff to your program with no credibility? You're most of the time taking over a team that's terrible because they just fired their last coach. It's not going to go as well. And then when you add that you don't have 12 uh, under center, well, then now you're in a really, really rough situation. So I think that probably has more to do with it. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a very alarming trend. And it's one of those things where it's almost like with the Celtics where, like, their guys get worse when they leave Brad Stevens. And you wonder if it hurts their trade value in the future, like future Celtics right. trade values. I do wonder if teams will start looking at that and say, I mean, McDaniels isn't going to go anywhere because he's Belichick's successor. But will teams stop plucking from New England knowing it's a, it's a waste of time? You know, like Patricia had been in New England forever and had been Belichick's defense coordinator forever. And I think for a while, people were probably hip to the fact that, yeah, I mean, Patricia, we wondered for a long time, why hasn't he gotten a head coaching job? Is because he is like kind of a grizzly bear looking guy. And eventually a team caved after New England. Finally, they looked amazing. And somebody was like, we have to hire this guy. And it may have blown up in their face. I mean, the players are already talking about how this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, <laughs> they, they don't like the way the, the, he's running practices and stuff. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. It's the same stuff. Is that you're trying to bring this Bill Belichick stuff and you're not Bill Belichick and you expect guys that immediately buy in. That's a tough sell for anybody. And to me, I, I personally look at it and and no one really looks at it this way when they hire these New England assistants. This is an interesting conversation. It's totally not pre- predicted or you know uh planned which is usually the best conversation we have but when people look at the new england situation and hiring other coaches from them and it not working out none of these teams ever consider well how come when i when they get they lose quote-unquote key assistance they never seem to miss a beat drop yeah exactly. <laughs> like that's never that, that has never been part of the conversation it's always like oh well we got this great new assistant from new england and now he's gonna show us the patriot way and it's like you got they've won the division the last 50 Don't years to care left <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't try to keep these dudes he let he likes when these guys leave it helps it helps his brand it helps uh his mystique and they just keep winning divisions and going to the Super Bowl every year. Like, and, and to be honest, he likes having a, a guy where a lot of these guys end up at AFC teams, and he's like, "Oh, now I have my underling, who I know yeah, exactly who the way I know he everything thinks. they want to do." Because I talk, to yeah, them. it makes things easier for me. If Bill O'Brien's in Houston, or Josh McDaniels is in Indianapolis, or Mike Vrabel's in Tennessee, like it makes things easier for this guy. So. The assistant that leaves when New England all of a sudden starts struggling, that'll be the guy I'd be like, oh wow, that guy clearly gave them something. And will I look if I'm if I'm a Patriots fan, am I sweating that Josh McDaniels is the coach in waiting right now? Because I mean there are plenty that were excited that he didn't leave and were excited about the prospect of him being the coach. I I sincerely Coach Belichick. Yeah. I do sincerely but, think that whenever the Belichick era ends, the Patriot era will end. This, they won't they're the done. Yeah, they won't be the same. Like they're, they're, they'll so go much, from like a 12-win team to like a 7-win team. I just think they, some years they'll be good and some years they won't be. They'll be like a regular NFL team. Like so much, of it, so much of that thing hinges on Brady and Belichick and just clearly they're on their last legs. I'm not saying that one's going to fall off a cliff, quote-unquote, like Max Hellman did. But I'm just saying that Brady's age, Belichick teetering on not wanting to be there anymore. 
to me, it looks very obvious that within the next five years, this is going to look very different. I mean, is that crazy? I don't think that's crazy to say at all. So when that happens, it's over. And maybe, you know, Patriot fans probably think I'm a Jet fan. It's like wishful thinking. I, it, there's nothing, I'm not thinking about the Jets at all when I say that. I genuinely look at the situation and be like, okay, they're not a team with, like, they haven't amassed superstar talent. They've kind of built their team around, like, indispensable, like, dispensable pieces around an indispensable player in Brady. So it's not like, oh, they have this treasure trove of, like, top-notch ta- They're not like they're the Jaguars, you know, where they're like, oh, the defense, though. Like, anyone could coach that defense, they would be number one. Like, they got a bunch of, like, piecemeal players. And they pieced it together because Brady and Belichick. Once that equation is gone, the average talent they've had on their roster all these years, they ain't going to cut it with Josh McDaniels. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, especially since they don't even know who their quarterback's going to be. Yeah, and they got rid of the future. So if I were if I were a Patriot fan, I would low key be uh, very nervous, given that not one Bill Belichick assistant has an, even a winning record, including Nick Saban. Did I mean close? Out. Yeah, it's like it's the closest eerie. guy it's might crazy. be Mangini. I think Mangini might be like three or four games. Like I he's, think he might be like four or five. Probably near five hundred, under five hundred, but it's 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 very alarming. Well, honestly, the closest guy is uh, Matt Patricia, <laughs> but um, he—I he, don't think he's trending upward. I'll tell you that much. Um, if I was going to do my biggest takeaway from Week One, um, honestly, my biggest takeaway from Week One was surprisingly how much the offenses were behind the defenses. In a league where players keep complaining about player safety and like it hindering defenses, I thought the offense of football this week, for the most part, was dreadful. Now, again, there were weather situations in a lot of outdoor games, but then there were games that had no no, no weather problems, like Carolina and Dallas, and the play was awful. Uh, Philly and Atlanta, there was no weather situation, and the play was awful. Do you have any clue why that might be? Was this a random bad week? Uh, is the is it the whole or does the, I know they talked about it in previous years, but is the practice schedule in training camp being less intense, hurting, you know, timing with these offenses? Because I thought that this week, while again it was entertaining, I can't say it was the most pretty football I've seen. I you know that's an interesting point. I hadn't really seen that raise but um i mean the the game that i mostly that i watched most closely obviously was the minnesota game and i mean, minnesota was very clean offensively so i'm not so from the minnesota perspective i didn't notice it i certainly noticed it from san francisco's point of view but then also part of me wonders well minnesota's a great defense so i can't blame san francisco for not looking that great but you had these like you, explosive performances between tampa baltimore new york New Orleans also put up points. Uh, Kansas City. Those were explosive performances. I feel like every other game, the offenses were very bad. Yeah. Um, it reflected in my uh, fantasy team, which I really took an L. <laughs> um, no surprise for the tank squad. But uh, Amari Cooper and the Oakland Raiders uh, also with a very lackluster offensive performance. 
Oakland probably could have won that Monday night game had it not been for Derek Carr and yeah, he blew up Cooper and Jordy Nelson. I mean, they have they. I, I'm disappointed, and I mean, we talk a lot about we talk a lot about Khalil Mack and the defense and what they would look like, but we never really focused on look. Oakland's offense has a lot of weapons, and they should be improved, and they they looked grotesque. So, I I mean, it's clearly was a trend all week. And or all Sunday, but I wouldn't panic. Something I'm worried about a little bit because I I think I've talked about it before, Ken. Though I feel like we talked about this the player safety and the sitting and standing, kneeling of the national anthem, all these things being reasons why football's popularity is down. To me, I've said it now for two years, and I saw it again this week. To me, the the product is not as good. And not necessarily because of player safety. I just think that there's a lot of mediocre to average football being played week to week. And when you promote a league for hyper parity, this is what you get. So I was, I'm was, i a little concerned that we're facing that again. Where I see this, this very sloppy, um, very mundane style of football. And I'm hoping we're not seeing what would be, to me, a third year in a row where the product is taking a dip. Honestly. In, in quality. You want to know where I think this stems from? I think this stems from we have some bad quarterbacks in the NFL right now. Yeah. And we don't have many elite ones. Yeah, I agree uh, with that too. You know, I thought New England looked good offensively. Uh, I thought Minnesota looked good. I thought uh, New Orleans looked good. Surprisingly, Tampa with Ryan Fitzpatrick looked good. But a lot of the teams that have elite quarterbacks looked good. Or, I mean, I wouldn't say Kirk Cousins is elite, but the top flight guy with a lot of weapons around him. A lot of those, a lot of those teams look good, but the teams with with a, a good or average quarterback trying to carry, you know, an offense that doesn't have a lot around him, or team with a, a bad quarterback, those teams didn't do anything offensively. Yeah, you know, New York looked very st- stagnant offensively. Jacksonville also was not great offensively. Um, Obviously, Oakland. we know what happened with Balt with uh, Buffalo. Baltimore looked great, but Baltimore was—I mean, Buffalo was so terrible. I mean, you're going to put up points with Nathan Peterman looking the way he looked. But you—I mean, Dallas didn't look that good. That looked Dallas, very bad. Like, but I feel like a lot of these quarterbacks are average. Yeah, we're at a point now in the NFL. I mean, you look, you go, you go, you play Madden, and you'll have like three or four quarterbacks. I mean, also we can't forget about Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah. Also looks done, but uh, you have like three or four quarterbacks that are rated like you know you have Brady, Rogers, Breeze, maybe like Russell Wilson. Those guys are like ninety three and up, and then, and then maybe Cam Newton's like a ninety something. And then there's like there might be like twenty quarterbacks that are like there's a huge jump to like then like eighty five with the next quarterback, and they're all it's like twenty quarterbacks in that eighty five to like seventy nine range, and it's like sad because I'm like. What happened to all the great quarterbacks? There's like only good, there's only five really legitimately five or six like elite quarterbacks, and the rest of these guys are just guys. Yeah, and I think that will reflect in the offense that we see now going forward. That if you don't have like a big time quarterback, you can win a Super Bowl because there aren't that many out there. But just understand that your offense also probably won't be nearly as explosive as it should be, Kendall, or as we've been accustomed to. Kendall, what's the most impressive performance of the weekend? The most impressive performance, uh, it's tough because 
Well, you know what? I, I, I think this is an easy one for me. I'm going to go – I was going to say it was tough because, you know, Buffalo, that Baltimore-Buffalo game, Baltimore, I mean, demolished them. But I can't take too much into – I mean, Buffalo looks like they may be the worst team in the league. But I'm going to say uh, what Tampa Bay did against uh, New Orleans. Mm. You know, going on the road against a team that a lot of people picked to win the Super Bowl or make it out of the NFC. And with Ryan Fitzpatrick at quarterback, and look, I told you, EJ, that Tampa Bay was going to mess around and start two and one, or maybe even three and zero, and people were going to talk, start talking about. I mean, look, it already happened. Uh, it already happened after week one. Stephen A. Smith from ESPN is coming out and saying James Winston should come back as a backup. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing it already. I'm, I'm like, after one game. <laughs> I mean, I thought like, oh yeah, Captain after three, if Fitzpatrick was good. Now we're already jumping the gun. I knew it was gonna happen because I knew I know people don't like James Winston, so the narrative was always gonna be Fitzpatrick's the guy. But I mean, I look, I can't blame people for jumping on the Fitzpatrick bandwagon after the way he looked, and even beyond Fitzpatrick, the weapons around Fitzpatrick and that de- the defense wasn't incredible. Because New Orleans put up points, but the weapons around Fitzpatrick, Mike Evans, and Deshaun Jackson played excellent. And I, unfortunately for the Tank Squad, I didn't start him on my fantasy team, so you know he gave me thirty points. But now I know to, to start Deshaun Jackson. But um, he looked incredible. Uh, so if you're a Tampa Bay fan, there's part of you that's like you're excited because you realize, well, we just beat one of the best teams in the league on the road with our back quarterback. And you wonder what does that mean for the quarterback position? And there's a part of this that might be even more excited that maybe this offense will look even better with James Winston out there. So, I, I mean, I don't know what their move is going to be. It obviously will depend on how they look in these next two weeks, playing who they play, New England and Philly. Yeah. Uh, some, so it's not going to be easy. But if you're if you're a Tampa Bay fan, it, you can't feel like you can go down because you lose those two games. Well, you're supposed to lose. If you win even one more, and you would have had an amazing start to this season. It is alarming to me that Mike Evans, Deshaun Jackson, Chris Guy, when these guys look as good as they've looked in their entire careers, when James Winston wasn't out there, it's one game. But that is wow. That's telling. I mean, Jameis Winston has had these dudes, especially Jackson and Evans. Jackson Evans his entire career. Jackson for what, the last two years, and uh, last year, last year was his first year. Um, they were not. They were year. not moving the ball like that at all. And look, Fitzpatrick played last year too and didn't look good. So I, maybe it could have just been. Carter put together a great game plan. He attacked them. They were aggressive, and they were they were clicking on all cylinders. But that's I don't know what that was about. That's real. I mean, the, he had two receivers well over a hundred yards last week. Chris Godwin almost got a hundred. He almost had three. I mean, they were shredding the New Orleans Saints. James Winston, when it, when he comes back, if he comes back, he's got a ball because people are going to look at that performance and say. Why haven't we seen this kind of explosive play? We, you have picked the Saints. I mean, the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl, we'll go to the Super Bowl the last two years in a row. Yeah, I feel like waiting for this kind of offense. You were waiting. You thought this was possible, and yeah, I, yeah, I didn't I mean, think it was. Weapons, 
And I thought, in part because of Jameis Winston, I thought he, I mean, he had explosive offenses at FSU, and I thought he could be among that elite echelon of quarterbacks, but he hasn't been that guy. And his offense, and Mike, he hasn't utilized Mike Evans the way I thought he probably should have been utilized. But we saw it. We saw Deshaun Jackson really look like Philly Deshaun Jackson on Sunday. On paper, this is what the Bucs can look like, which is why people have been excited about them for years. The fact that they haven't looked that way, and then when James Winston's gone now, they look like the greatest show on turf? <laughs> I mean, that 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 raised an eyebrow or two for me. I will say that for sure. Um, for my most impressive performance, am I going to go anywhere else, Kendall? I can't go anywhere J-E-T-S? It's the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, I mean, look, we can talk about the Lions. That was a pathetic performance. Um, then I could be my biggest disappointment, but I do have to say, put that out there that that was that they looked so bad, and the Jets dominated them in such a way. I I can't remember the last time the Jets dominated a team like that. I remember they beat Arizona by like forty one time with Brett Favre at home. I don't remember yeah. that game. They beat them like fifty something, like six something crazy. Uh. That was probably the last time I saw the Jets dominate a game like this, where really, besides the first play of the game, which was that ridiculous, ridiculous interception by Sam yeah. Donald, um, after that point, from there on, it was very clear who the best, better team was. And that's shocking, considering what the Jets have been the last few years and what the Lions have been and what they're hoping and aspiring to be this year. The Jets... The big play offense was there with the running game. The big play offense, the big play special teams was there uh, with the kick returns with Roberts. And then Sam Darnold, after that interception, really, really stuck in there and played really solid football. I thought that Bates had a really terrible end-around call on a third and one with Robbie Anderson. But besides that, I thought Jeremy Bates, new offensive coordinator, called a very good game. I think he's been one of the guys I've really been looking at in terms of massive key players for the Justice season because I thought that Morton did a good job for them last year and then he moved on because him and Bowles didn't really see eye to eye. And they moved on to Bates, a guy who hasn't had that much experience, only one year, is call, only one year calling plays, and it didn't go that great in Seattle. It was Matt, Matt uh, Hasselbeck's worst year. Um Though it was Marshawn Lynch, one of his best years, and he had that infamous run in the playoffs during that year. But this is Bates' next next crack as an OC, and I thought he did a really good job calling plays. I like the way they get the ball out of uh, Sam Darnold's hands quick. And Quincy Inouye, this guy looks like he's ready to play now. After last year being out for all, all, all year, we were all excited about what we saw two years ago. And he stepped in, and he's immediately become the safety blanket number one receiver for uh, Sam Darnold. So the Jets... The offense was great, but even more impressive than the offense to me and the big plays, the Jets' defense is serious um, to the point where I now I'm kind of frustrated because as a Jet fan, I feel like had they made the move to get Khalil Mack, I would think the Jets have a shot at making the playoffs. Seriously. Because like, I think the, Jet def- the, 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 the linebacking play, Darren Lee had the best game of his career. We've been waiting for Darren Lee to play out this all for two or three years now. Um, I thought Williamson played great in the middle. And the secondary, New Jack City, the secondary got some players now. 
Uh, Tremaine Williams, he got rocked on that interception when he fumbled. But Tremaine Williams had a pick. Jamal Adams is going to be a future All-Pro. Um, Mo Claiborne had an excellent pick, too, and he's kind of turned his career around. I'm impressed with my New York Jets, man. I thought that that was a great performance. Everyone, I think, kind of assumed they'd get their doors blown off, and instead they were the ones blowing off the doors, so to speak. Uh, that was a, a, a stellar performance by the Jets. Yeah, no, the Jets, they probably the most. I think that, that performance was more shocking than the Tampa Bay performance, only because Tampa Bay... I for some again because of just karma. I knew Ryan Fitzpatrick was gonna have, he's gonna have one performance where he's gonna look amazing, and people are gonna start talking about is it the end of Jameis Winston, blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, this is the but, typical thing with Fitzpatrick. Yeah, exactly. Fitzpatrick. Jets fans, Bills fans, we all know. You know, and Texans fans probably know this as Texans, well. Texans, yeah. But um, the Jets. Not that I didn't think the Jets had any shot at winning, but especially after that first throw. By Darnold, you realize, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Just about to get routed on national TV. And then you look up, and they're up by, like, 30 points. And you're like, whoa, how did this even happen? Um, no, I mean, it's it's really shocking because they have – they don't have a lot of talent on paper. But I asked the question – I feel like I asked the question on the show last week or at some point. Is Sam Darnold one of those guys where – He's good enough because there are quarterbacks in this league that are good enough, regardless of the talent around them, to make your team competitive. And he looked like it in the preseason, where, I mean, they could, they could look, they could, they could survive. Because we talked, I think we did talk about it on the show because we talked about whether or not Darnold could, whether it was worth it to put him out there, and whether or not it'd be a danger to his development for, to put him out there with this uh, weak roster, but. You know, the question was always going to be, look, is he good enough to make this team look legitimate? And, I mean, again, it's not solely Darnold, but I don't think this team looks as good with Josh McCown out there. And I don't think that the offense moves the ball as well as they did with Josh McCown out there. There's a little extra pep in their step when you have a guy like Sam Darnold that they have very much, that they very much have a lot of confidence in. Um I, I don't. I didn't watch the. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the Jets post game show on SNY, but I'm sure they gave out all A's because every facet of the game, uh, in terms of their report card, because every facet of the game was elite for the Jets on Monday night. The question has to be though: Was this more about the Jets or was it more about the Lions? The, the narrative coming out seems to be a more about the Lions, right? But um, and that's fair. Maybe we're being harsh on the Lions. Maybe the Jets. I don't think the Jets are a 12-win team like they looked on on Monday, but mm-hmm. are they – I mean, most people assume this is a 5-6-win team at best. Could this be an 8-9, maybe even 10-win team? That's the question. Yeah, I think that's fair for people to feel like, oh, it's more of, you know, the Lions you, and the Jets. Cause, I mean, the, you ain't terrible, that bad. The, giant, the, the Jets need to earn that kind of reputation. They need to, you know, they can't just be giving them, oh, well, now the Jets are world beaters. Like, they need to show week in and week out that they can play that way. And they showed it this week. We got to see moving forward. The Lions, our team, uh, they, they they won nine games last year. They fired their coach, but they weren't a terrible team. They've been in the playoffs in recent years. So 
the idea that they could look that bad, it makes more sense for people to jump out the window for them and be like, yo, that was a grotesque performance, which is what it was. But, uh, but at the same time, I think that you can't underestimate if you're the Jets. I mean, this is a team that had the longest drought without um, a, a pick six, the longest drought uh, without a punt return. They got them both in that game. They had a huge. I mean, you had you had the huge pass to Robbie Anderson down the field. You had the big run from Isaiah Crowell. I mean, the the Jets for the first time looked like a team that could make explosive plays. Um, Robbie Anderson gave us a taste of that a little bit last year. Him and McCown had a good connection, but for the most part, the Jets has just been. And it, the stats show they didn't have any punt returns, any kick returns, no pick sixes. They weren't making those kind of big explosive big plays. Now you look at this Jets team on defense; they're fast, they're aggressive. On offense, they have some they have some some pieces that maybe we were underestimating. I, I gotta say, I, I really like what I saw from the Jets last week, but it is alarming that the Jets defensive uh, coordinator Casey Rogers, who's now pretty much calling defense, Bowles is kind of taking a step back in terms of the 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 every play play calling, uh, every down play calling in the defense. How badly they out schemed. Uh, Jim Bob Cooter and the Lions. That was, I, I mean, Matt Stafford didn't look like he was prepared for what the Jets were doing. I mean, some of these picks were just ridiculous to the point where I, I, I some of that I put on coaching. Where it's like he, he, I've seen Matt Stafford play way better than this, and he it didn't seem like the coaches put them in a position to win that game, which is where the con, the, the the questions about Patricia and that coaching staff are fair i think but uh kendall what was your most disappointing performance uh i mean it's got i mean i don't know it's tough the buffalo bills obviously were awful for a team that i mean after they did that team made the playoffs right yeah (laughs) for the first time like 30 years sometimes you have to remember because they look that bad (laughs) <laughs> so how did this team make the playoffs like eight months ago? But the Buffalo Bills were awful. Um, I you know there's obviously the quarterback is something that was that's been much talked about. Uh, but even beyond that, the quarterback position, um, but how do you give up that much? What are they have forty nine points or forty seven points, points? Yeah, to the Baltimore Ravens. And a, a team that I think I can't give them that much credit because I still know the Ravens aren't that good. That is one where I'm like, it's similar to the Lions one where it's like if you lose by that much, it's not all the other team. It's there's some of it is on yourself for losing that much, you know. Like there's no excuse for the Ravens to be hanging 47 on you in what was almost a shutout. Like I don't know what they. I mean, they're gonna start Josh Allen in week two. Good luck to that kid. Yeah, I mean, it's they would have been better off just cutting Nathan Peterman and signing another guy. Because <laughs> I, I mean, what else? What's the other move? If you're gonna bench Peterman, I, I would have played Peterman again, probably. Even though you're asking yourself, you're asking for another blowout, but it's now at this point you're really throwing Josh Allen at the wolves. I would say, you, yeah. If you really didn't think Josh Allen was ready, which there's no way you thought Josh Allen was ready if you put Nathan Peterman out there. Yeah. And he looks the way he looked. Then what 
what do you what sir you're doing this only out of necessity it's not as if peterman's hurt he's healthy so that means either you cut him and find another guy to be the starter or you start him again and continue to protect josh allen but you gain nothing from playing josh allen if he looks bad yeah i I have to go back to what i said about mcdermott before last year when he made the move to peterman before that I mean, to me, the, he he his run in Buffalo will be very short lived, despite the fact that they made the playoffs. Because to me, there is something very alarming that this man could watch a bunch of practices, can go through film, can 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 do every measure to to figure out who are the best eleven guys to be out in the field every week. And twice, he thought Nate Peterman was the guy that should be calling the signals. Like, how do you come to that decision? I mean, look, maybe this guy looks like Montana in practice. Like, maybe there's just something that this is an obscure situation where the guy looks great in practice, and then when the lights come on, he's not about the real, the real bullets flying. That could, maybe that's it. It could be the case, but I, I just find that hard to believe that you could be this off on a guy twice. He had two of the worst performances we've seen in NFL football by a quarterback in his only two starts. And both times he started by winning the job. It wasn't like, oh, like, there's injuries, so therefore we got to go to him. The, the coach twice looked at the roster, looked at the practices, looked at the performances of the other quarterbacks and said, Peterman's got to be the he's the best guy that gives us the best chance to win. They might have lost by a combined 70 points in these games that he started. I mean, that... And then his defense, obviously, again, didn't show any life uh, in that sorry performance they had in Baltimore. I don't know what it is with McDermott. He, he's not all awful because at the end of the day, they did make the playoffs for the first time in 20 years, so he hasn't done everything wrong. But to me, that, that shows me that this is not a guy who's going to be there for a long time because if you are this wrong and off on your quarterback twice like this, because like you said, now you're going to Josh Allen in a position where you clearly didn't think he was ready week one. Him seeing Peterman get his brains beat in for <laughs> three quarters means that now he's ready to play. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. So, uh, to me, Peterman's learning from the Hugh Jackson school of of handling rookie quarterback with what he's doing right now. This doesn't make any sense. In regards to my most disappointing performance for the week, I agree, Kellen. There are a lot of ways you can go, but I'm gonna go with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, while I I say the Pittsburgh Steelers, I also want to put in there, the Browns are also one of my most disappointing performances. But let me focus on the Steelers first. This team has not won a game in 22-something games. 22 games, I believe. And you're you're on the road against a team that is your division rival. And you have five turnovers. Um, You're a team that's supposed to be an all-weather, cold-weather team. And you can't handle rain the way they can handle rain. Uh, that that was a terrible game, and with and what makes it more disappointing is I don't care what those guys are now saying, post tying the worst team in NFL history, the idea that these dudes could talk so much smack about Le'Veon Bell for all these weeks, and then play like that, I'm sorry, that was that that's that's ridiculous. Um, they showed no heart. I don't. I, I thought Mike Tomlin was way too positive after that game. Not to say he was like 
happy and joyful that they got blown out or they got they tied rather. But like he just was like, you know, I appreciate the effort. The effort was there. No, this effort wasn't there. I'm sorry. You when you turn the ball over five times and when your team plays with such lack of focus on offense, that you can't go and say, well, the effort was there. That that to me, no, the effort was not there because they weren't focusing in the way they should be focusing. And again, for this team to talk so much smack about their arguably their best player, and then show up like that, I'm sorry, that was that was ridiculous. And Ben Roethlisberger, I hope I'm wrong because he did do this last year. A lot of people forget he had a really really slow start last year too. But he looked like a guy that was on his last legs on on Sunday. Um, watching him in the pocket, he doesn't move well at all. If I was coaching against them, I know it's playing with fire because of how dangerous AB is and Smith uh, Schuster is, but I'd be blitzing them a lot because he doesn't move in the pocket well at all. Um, the rain could have a lot to do with it, but he wasn't very accurate, obviously. And the decision-making, he just seemed like a step slow. Ben Roethlisberger is a all-time great. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame, but he looked like God doesn't have it. So I, if I'm a Steeler fan, I'm a little concerned considering that was a game that they had no business even being in, let alone tying. And the fact that they still had this game and then talked so much about Le'Veon Bell, I just feel like it, it spoke to them not being at all mentally prepared and ready for this game. And that's the result that they got. For the Browns, quickly, because they were probably my my second or third most disappointing. You play a game, you got five turnovers and you can't win, like, I know they're they're coming from a long way. They're trying to really, uh, you know, change everything about themselves. And winning is is something that takes time. But there's no I don't know if a team's ever had a plus five turnover differential and not won a game in the NFL. I, I would be curious to see what that stat is. But I mean, their offense also uh, left a lot to be desired. Tyrod Taylor, I thought, was pretty dreadful, and. For a team that's trying to get over the hump, you can't consistently give games like this away. So they're kind of like my dual most disappointing disappointing weeks this week, but the Steelers are definitely number one for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, hey, that makes sense considering the two teams that tied. But uh, Pittsburgh... Did you see that uh, that Antonio Brown uh, article in the Undefeated? No. What what was? Can you give me the gist of it? Oh well, I mean, it was kind of bashing Antonio Brown. You know, it was the 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 theme of the the article was that like Antonio Brown is very active on social media and Instagram, but he doesn't say much to the the actual media and is very passive aggressive against them and stuff. And well, so he had to apologize for sending a threatening. Tweet? Yeah, cause, yeah, and then he he came at he came at the reporter. In the article, the guy talks about like he gets he, he talks about some personal stuff with Antonio Brown, but then he talks about how he reached out to him and Antonio Brown DM'd him saying, you know, stop talking to my people, stop trying to get an interview, you know, stay in your lane or whatever. And then the article came out, and then so then you know, Antonio Brown basically said, said he's gonna knock the dude out on Twitter, <laughs> more or less, and. Then it blew up. Where Mike, so then they started asking Mike Tomlin about it, but he shrugged it off. But yeah, it was a rough week for Antonio Brown as well. It was a very, very long, very, very detailed article, though. 
Yeah, I think I think I'm very quickly jumping on my steel is going into a bandwagon. Like I may be out already. This team's a mess. It might be the quickest time I've been out on a team that I predict. And He's actually stay strong. But this may end up being the end of Mike Tomlin. We may be watching the end of it. Wow. And Which like seems very week, it's very last early week I thought they would that. overcome this stuff and get this Super Bowl, and now I'm like, yo, this team looks terrible. But it's one thing to lose games and have an aging team, but it's one team. It's one thing to have a chaotic organization. That's something Pittsburgh never really had. But right now, this team is in a state of chaos. Their best players threatening to fight <laughs> national media. Their quarterback is like retiring every two weeks. And their 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 second best player and star running back is giving up a million dollars a game to not play. So, I mean, clearly, clearly things in Pittsburgh are not peachy right now. And honestly, Mike Tomlin has been very whole hum about it, kind of just letting this stuff happen. So, Mike Tomlin's a great coach, but you know, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't been a little more uh, aggressive. I mean, he doesn't have to be because he's already won Super Bowl. He's already won a Super Bowl, but it's probably the end of more aggressive in trying to calm this thing down. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, but sometimes when you've been coaching someplace for a long time, like your message and your players kind of tune you out. And then this is the kind of stuff that happens. Guys hold out. The guys talk smack about the guy holding out. The star players wants to fight reporters. Like this kind of stuff wasn't happening under Mike under Mike Tomlin three four years ago. There wasn't, no. but like, like it kind of you no. Know, James Harrison talking crazy. James Harrison going to the Patriots. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You no, know, like just like stuff where it's like, yo, what's going on in Pittsburgh? Why is it? You know, you talked about Ben Roethlisberger hinting at retirement every two weeks, like trashing the team's rookie quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yeah media. Trashing the team and the the new rookie they just drafted. Yeah, saying, trashing the GM, trashing the, the rookie. Saying this guy is useless for us. Like, saying why we draft his bump. Like it, it to me, it speaks to like they feel like even it might not even be an outward. Uh, what's the word? Not riot, but like it's not like an outward protest of Mike Tomlin or an outward, uh, you know, way of of like you know, showing that they're they they want new leadership. But sometimes like when you become wild, wild comfortable west. in a situation, you don't you tend to just do whatever you want. Where like you kind of forget about like the rules of engagement, so to speak, in dealing with. The NFL day to day, you're like, oh well, you know, I've been in the same team all this time. Tomlin's been on the, the coach all this time. We kind of know what we're expected to. So then, guys start to kind of walk the fine line of what is isn't isn't appropriate. We're seeing them do this now on a weekly basis. I, I thought this week, the for Mike Tomlin team looked like that on week one was really disappointing. Um, Kendall. What are the predictions for this week? Let's start off college football. We didn't talk any college football last week, but we have two massive games. One in the SEC, an early SEC tilt between LSU and Auburn. This game is being played in Auburn. LSU obviously had that very impressive week one performance against my Miami Hurricanes. So they come in this uh, this week number 12. Uh, Auburn also had a very impressive uh, week one performance by holding off Washington. That defense for both teams looks really stout. I don't expect this to be a high-scoring game. Who you got in this one, Kendall? This is a tough one. I'm actually going to go with the upset. I'm going to say LSU wins this one. Mm. Um, their their defense looked uh, very, very solid against Miami. Uh, I think they've got 
they've got the weapons defensively with with Dave Aranda, the defensive coordinator, who's probably one of the best coordinators in the country, where I feel like they can do enough to shut down Jared Stidham in that Auburn offense. And really, all they're going to need is Joe Burrows to make a couple of plays. I mean, they don't need him to to, to win the game for them because I think their defense will be good enough to do that. They just need him to not lose it. And I think he seems he seemed, at least against Miami, to be steady enough for that for them to win. So I, I, I think this LSU team is for real. I think they'll prove it this week against Auburn. I think games like this, home field advantage matters. Um, these are kind of games where uh, it's usually a game of inches, a turnover here, field goal here. These are kind of nip and tuck games. Usually those games go to the home team. I like Auburn here. Auburn has a little more of a recent pedigree of winning these big games. I'm not as sold on Burroughs as you are. I think Miami had some issues in that. <laughs> clearly had some issues in that game. Uh, in regards to their defense, they were extremely sloppy. And they lost their arguably their best corner in the first two minutes. That's not going to happen against this Auburn defense, which is, is better than Miami's defense, which I still think is good. Uh, I'm not going to jump off their bandwagon defensively completely just yet. So I think this is a tougher game on the road. That Dallas game was like a home game for LSU. I'd say Auburn, uh, with the veteran leadership from Stidham, they make just enough plays to win a tight one, something like 20, 21 to 18, something like that. Um, let's get to the next uh, big game for this week in college football. It's kind of a bizarre, random game that I, I don't know where how these teams came to this conclusion that they were going to play this year. Uh, but we're going to have a game where Ohio State travels to Fort Worth to play TCU. Um, okay, kind of a random game, but this is actually actually I said it was in Fort Worth. It's actually in Dallas. Oh, uh, it's, yeah. it's at AT and T Stadium in Arlington. So uh, TCU ranks number fifteen. Ohio State number four. They've uh, they seems like they scored like 100 points in their last two games in the, in the first uh, games they played. But TCU is also a little impressive. And we know Gary, Paris, Gary Patterson always has his team ready to play. So, Kendall, who you got between the Buckeyes and the Horned Frogs? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to take too much from what I saw from Ohio State in their first couple of games because they played nobody. Um, so this is the first real, real test, even though Oregon State's a Power 5 school. And so is Rutgers. They're, Rutgers is in their conference. Yeah, and Rutgers is a power five school. I, I take nothing from those two games. They, those, those teams those couldn't are, win the pack. The MAC. The yeah, MAC. they couldn't win the pack either. <laughs> yeah, whatever the pack you know, is, the they division couldn't win. Three, <laughs> <laughs> division three conference. They probably couldn't win that conference <laughs> either. But, um, no, yeah, I mean, Ohio State, even though I don't take much from those games, I still, I also can't say to myself that they looked that they've looked any worse than I could have thought they were going to look. So, with that being said, I think that they're a better team than TCU. Um, Dwayne Haskins has looked very, very good so far. Tate Martell has also played well, but I don't expect we'll see much more of him as the games get tighter. We've only seen him because they've they've been in blowouts these first two games anyway. But um, I think this will be their first real test, and I think they'll win it fairly easily. I don't think they'll be... They'll sweat a little bit. They'll probably win this game by two touchdowns, but it won't be like... This won't be a, a game where you make some mass substitutions. They'll have to play... They'll have to finish this game out. I think this game... This is an interesting matchup to me because 
I think Gary Patterson's one of the best coaches, and the idea that he's going to be going against a team without their lead man, Urban Meyer, I don't think that's nothing. I think that's something. I don't know if it's enough to win this game. I think this is going to be a close one. Uh, I got to admit, Haskins looks better than I thought he would look. He's, I mean, I know, again, they've been playing against teams that I don't really have much respect for, but, I mean, they look like they are not going to miss a beat at the quarterback position. So this is going to be a great test for him uh, going on the road because, to me, this is a road game. Uh, I don't know if it's an official road game. I'm not sure how they're, they're calling this, but uh, I'm going to go with Ohio State playing another close game. I think they're going to score a little bit, though. Score a little bit, um, maybe something like in the 30s. And uh, and I think that it's going to be a big test for uh, TCU's quarterback, Sean Robinson, who's only a sophomore. I think that in his first two games, he's been pretty good. He was in Southern, he was, you know, great as a Southern. But then SMU, I thought he was up and down. So he's up and down against SMU. I can't imagine that you're going to feel more comfortable playing against Ohio State. So. Uh, look out for him maybe to be an issue for TCU in this game. I'm going to say Ohio State wins a comfortable game, but not a, not a blowout. Maybe maybe by about 10 points, 31 to 21 maybe. Uh, let's go to the NFL now. Uh, let's get Vikings at Packers, Kendall. We saw the, the heroic performance from Aaron Rodgers. He says he's starting this week. He has a knee sprain. I, I'm assuming this will probably be a game-time decision or some kind of uh, – Situation where they're going to monitor him throughout the week. Vikings, of course, won last week. What do you say, Kendall? Who got who gets this uh, this uh, first matchup between the two rivals in the NFC North? Vikings. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the, the Vikings. Um, they will win this game, uh, especially if Rodgers doesn't play. But I'm funny suspicion Rodgers will find a way to get out there against Minnesota, but. Um, no, I think Minnesota, I, one, I think we're a better team. I mean, I watched that game last week, and obviously, look, I don't want to overreact because it's San Francisco, and while San Francisco is not awful, they're also far from the elite competition in the NFL, and they're far from where Minnesota is striving to be in the NFL, but um, I couldn't help but realize, like, the question, a lot of the questions were stemming from what will the team? What will the offensive line look like? Which I thought it looked good, and also what will Kirk Cousins look like now under center for Minnesota? And the offense was excellent. The defense was great. Um, the line held up. Also, what helps is that Kirk Cousins is a guy that's never played with a great offensive line to begin with. You know, in Washington, he never had a whole lot of time, so I don't think he's he's a little more used to it than maybe Bridgewater and Keenum have been uh but ultimately i came away saying that this ultimately ultimately i came away with the feeling that and an impression that minnesota the team with very little weakness and dalvin cook also looked very explosive uh so i'm i'm excited about this minnesota team and while green bay also looks very good i don't know what rogers is going to look like and i don't know i don't think they're that great outside of rogers which doesn't mean they're they're still a very good team because Rodgers is that good, but um, I don't think they're more a complete enough team to beat Minnesota. Yeah, I'm actually in the I'm actually of the thinking that the Packers should not play Aaron Rodgers in this game. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I know it's a tough game. It's a home game against the favorites in the division. So 
you don't play him, you're saying we're you giving you this it. game. Yeah. Yeah. And that could almost mean dropping two games. If now you're considering, well, I hope that Aaron Rodgers and everything is fine for when we play them on the road later on in the year. That is a tall task, but I think the season is more important than even this division or this division matchup. I just think that you put him in harm's way with that pass rush and that aggressive defense and try to play him in this game with those three guys that they have with the Vikings. The Bears defense is very good, and it was dangerous to put him out there with that defense. But the Vikings are a whole other level of defense, and I don't think that it would be smart to put him out there if his knee is not right. Uh, he just signed a huge contract. You need him for all, as many games as possible when the games really matter. I know every game matters in the NFL, but to, to risk him never really getting back close to where he normally is because you're trying to play him in short, uh, in, you know, week to week, I don't think it's smart. I think giving him a week off to get right for maybe the next two games, uh, Washington, Buffalo, easier games for him, that would make more sense. I think he'll try to play. I think they'll play him, and I think they'll lose. I think they'll lose regardless of whether he plays or whether he doesn't play. But I do think that, I mean, to me, he has some kind of issue with his knee, even if he does try to play. And that what he did against the Bears is not going to, he's not going to be able to do that against the Vikings. Um, And then on, uh, and for the Vikings, uh, this is, a very good team. I mean, obviously, you know, like it's this is a this is a team that I thought this is a tough part of their schedule. So far, they've handled it well in that first win against the 49ers, and I, I expect them to play great ball uh, even in Lambeau. So I got the Vikings both taking the road team there. Let's go uh, Patriots at Jaguars. I'll go first here since I know I always, I always toss it up to you. I'm gonna go with uh, the Patriots here. Uh, Jacksonville defensively once again looked dominant against the Giants, save for another big game from Odell Beckham. He definitely won that matchup against um, uh, Jalen Ramsey, and then of course the long run from Barkley. Besides that, they dominated the Giants completely uh, in that game. The Jaguars defense is great, but I think what was concerning to me was their offense still looks very pedestrian, and now, you know, Bortles may have had his best game of the year in the playoffs against the Patriots. But I I think that if this is the kind of offense we're still going to see from the Giants, from, excuse me, from the, from the Jaguars, then I would not expect uh, them to be able to hang with New England, even at home. Uh, they're going to need more than just, you know, we're going to, you know, kind of just keep making sure that, we don't turn the ball over, and our defense is going to bail us out with pick sixes and things like that. He got a big one from Miles Jack last week. Uh, you also have Leonard Fournette being questionable this week. So that's not going to help the running game. Patriots, I thought, were – they didn't look dominant either. They were okay against the, Jag- the Texans. I think the Texans are much better than people think, and they didn't have uh, Fuller playing at wide receiver. So I don't think that – I'm not going to say, oh, the Patriots are you know not as good because they didn't really run away from the Texans this week. I just think that in a game where you know the Patriots are going to be up for it, playing against a team that they competed in so so competitively with in that uh, conference championship, they're going to be more prepared for this than they were for Houston. So I got New England. Close game on the road. Yeah, I got New England also. Uh, I thought Jacksonville, they also were kind of low-key a team that I was very disappointed in this week. Um yeah. 
the Giants, I, I mean, I knew the Giants would be improved, but Jacksonville is a team that's trying to win a Super Bowl, or at least trying to win the AFC, and you have to stomp that Giants team. And they, they gave the Giants multiple chances to win that game. They did. But Eli Manning just couldn't really ever really get it going offensively. Uh, and, I you know, I, again, I'm a little disappointed. But I feel like they do that same thing against New England, they're going to get crushed. So I, I don't think that that will happen. I think they'll be a little bit more ready to play, but not enough to beat this New England team, which I agree also will be improved after – a kind of a shaky, especially second half performance against Houston. Yeah, they were sloppy in the second half. I don't think Belichick was happy with that performance. Um, I think that they'll be much sharper in a game that they know they have to be if they want to win. You can't mess around with this Jaguars defense. If you mess around with the way they played against Houston in the second half, the game will be over. They'll they'll run away from you uh, quickly. So let's go to uh, another game this week. Let's, it's the last one we got for the week. We just talked about the Giants. They're on the road against Dallas. We didn't get to talk about Dallas as far as disappointments, but I think that there's got to be a lot of concern with how Dak Prescott, that offense, looked. Uh, Again, after a rough year last year in week one against Carolina, only putting up eight points. Giants, also not a great performance. It was Odell Beckham, one long run from Barkley, and that was it. So these are two teams that need to win this game. You could argue whoever loses this game is in grave danger in terms of the season already being over. Uh, who you got, Kendall, in this uh, Giants Cowboys matchup? But always a fun division rivalry. I'm gonna say the Giants win this one. Uh, again, I, I mentioned the Giants last week. I thought they looked pretty good, um, but like almost like obviously it's a theme for Week One. But I think a lot of these teams could look better, could play better. I think the Giants are a team that I think legitimately could play better. I'm not sure Dallas. Of course, Dallas could play better, but I. I don't think Dallas is very good. I'm going to be honest. Like, uh, Dallas, Dallas' performance was less inspiring than the Giants. The Giants looked like a team that legitimately brought it and played against a really tough defense and a tough team that they just weren't able to make the right plays to win the game but played the right way and looked well coached. Dallas looked like a, just a floppy team, you know, that couldn't capitalize on a Carolina team that also wasn't really ready to win. But um, they just look like a group of underachievers. So I, I this made this looks this smells like a six win Dallas team and a team where Jason Garrett will not be the coach next year. But uh, no, I think the Giants will end up winning this game. I didn't. I don't feel great about either team after those Week One performances. Uh, these games are like pick them games when the Giants play the Cowboys. Uh, it's hard to really say what is going to happen. I'm going to go Giants too. I'm going to go Giants because I don't really like any of the, either of these quarterbacks. But if I'm going to say who has a better chance of turning it around, I'm going to say it's Eli only because of his receiver and his supporting cast. I think the issue I have with Dak is I don't trust his receivers at all. And they did not show up in any way in week one. And they had a lot of other issues um, in week one as well. Now, the Giants have a situation where they're still starting Eric Flowers for some reason. I know he's a Kane, and I don't like to hit on Canes, but he 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 caused the pick six that Miles Jack ended up taking to the house that ended up being the difference in the ball game. 
they got to be able to protect Eli if they want to have any shot because he's not the kind of player, like I said last week when we did our show, that's going to raise the ability of his teammates. He is a average at best quarterback that they're trying to win big with by putting together explosive players around him. That's not impossible to do as long as you protect him. So he's got to get better protection than he got against the Jaguars. That could be possible considering the Jaguars front is out of this world. But um, but I, I just I agree with you with the Cowboys. I'm not I, I you noticed during the during the preview show I didn't really mention them at all. I didn't say much about them at all. I don't think much about this team. So the Giants I think have more upside. I think they show in this game. It's a game they got to get. I think they feel like this is a season that's going to be different than last. So we're going to be in agreement in all five of our games this week. I also will be taking the G men on the road against the Cowboys. Kendall, let's talk about the Basketball Hall of Fame, which happened last week. So, obviously, you had some big names. Uh, I thought this was actually one of the bigger name NBA uh, Hall of Fame things I've seen, the Basketball Hall of Fames I've seen. We had Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, Ray Allen, Grant Hill, along with, uh, you know, Tina Thompson in WNBA. Somehow, Dina Roger got in. <laughs> I don't know what that Let's you off. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. Uh, Lethe Richardzell, the great Maryland coach, got in. It was a really great ceremony. Um, I thought the speeches actually were really good. I, you know, sometimes the basketball hall of fame. I, I gotta be honest, even though I'm a basketball fan, the the induction ceremony I feel like is usually the worst of the three major sports. Though Jordan's was still like <laughs> something. I I think it was a great speech. I know a lot of people don't like it, but um, uh. And obviously had a great speech, but every, you know, every most years it's kind of a snooze fest. This year I thought was the, fun. The the best line, the best line from from the 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 night was uh, Charlie Scott, who got in former Celtic in North Carolina, great. But he uh, he was talking about Roy Williams, and he joked that because I guess Roy Williams' son's name is Scott, and he said that uh, he joked that Roy Williams named his son after Scott, named named his son after him. And he was like, uh, you know, good thing he was born when he was, because had he been born any later, he probably would have named him uh, Jordan yeah. or uh, Ford, or, he's like, or even worse, Hansborough. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good line. Um, but yeah, that was that. It was a fun night. I thought it was a good night. I enjoyed uh, Steve Nash's speech. I thought it was really good. Ray Allen's speech. I thought it was really good. Um, it, it was just. It was just. I mean, I think. All these, I think the I'm a sucker. I love history. I'm a basketball sports historian, so anything involving sports history, I'm I'm already signed up for. I thought this was a, a good showing for the NBA, but it, it leads us to I think what's an interesting conversation every year because I think there isn't no one quite understands what is the credential to make the basketball Hall of Fame because again this year Dino Roger got in. He played like four years in the NBA, n- never made it all. I think he, I don't think he ever made an All Star game. He was good. He was a very good player, but I. But because of his international, uh, you know, contributions, him being one of the first major international players to come over from Europe to the NBA and have very good success, that gets included in the criteria for who gets in. So, we wanted to have a conversation about guys who, either recently have become eligible, or will become eligible soon, uh, and what their chances are at making the Hall of Fame. So we're going to run down the list. Kendall, you're going to give me a yes or a no, and we'll talk about each guy quickly. Let's start with, is he even on the team, Joe Johnson? <laughs> I was going to say Rockets guard, but I don't think he's no. on the Rockets. 
Nah, he's not on the team. Yeah, he's not on the team right now. Joe Johnson, he just recently played for the Rockets. Joe Johnson, Kendall, I think he's a six-time All-Star. Uh, he was a he was a star player for the Atlanta Hawks and what became a resurgence for that franchise after so many years of being an NBA doormat. What do you think of Joe Johnson's chances of making the All-Star game? I mean, excuse me, making the Hall of Fame, rather. Uh, are you <laughs> that in no the- shot making the All-Star Yeah, no shot making the All-Star game this year. Is he, does, he have, does he have a shot at making the Hall of Fame? Um, it's tough. I the six All Star games is probably a little inflated. It's actually seven, actually seven. Yeah, exactly. Probably a little inflated because he played in the Eastern Conference. Um, he's one of the most clutch players of our generation. I'm gonna say that he does get in, but it will be a long time from now. Uh, I think you factor in his clutch gene. You factor in. He played for some Hawks teams, especially one Hawks team that was the best in the Eastern Conference at one point. He made all those All-Star games. I think he'll get in. Uh, this is a tough one. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Joe, I'm going to say Joe doesn't get in. It's uh, a shame, man. Seven All-Stars is a lot of games, All-Star games for someone not to get make the Hall of Fame. But I, I think you make a good point about the all-star numbers being inflated because of how many years he played in the East. I mean, he had two years in a row where he averaged 18 points and four assists and made the all-star game. They ain't, they ain't making it down, man. He had one year in Brooklyn. <laughs> he had one year in Brooklyn where he averaged 15.8 points and made the all-star game. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's three knows. all-star games you could take away from him. If you, I mean, I know you shouldn't do that, but like you could make the case that and if he was in any other conference, he would not have made the All-Star game. So, okay, you're looking at maybe, at best, a four- or five-time legitimate All-Star. Um, I, I can't say career number 16 points. That's good, not great. Uh, his seven years in Atlanta, I, I like I like that, you know, shout-out to Basketball Reference. They're the awesome website, reference.com, period. They do all these statistics. I like to look at guys' runs on certain teams. I look at Joe Johnson's run on the Atlanta Hawks. That's where you would say his Hall of Fame years were. He averaged twenty, basically twenty-one points, uh, five assists, four rebounds, shot forty-five percent from the field. It's good. Never really went deep uh, in terms of going to the NBA Finals. I can't look at those numbers and, and say that that guy is definitely Hall of Fame. Yeah, also, I, I I just realized that he wasn't on he that, was not on that team. team. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. That but they had so many all stars, and it wasn't him. That was but, a uh, up, yeah. But, uh, no, yeah, but I think that um, given that he kind of felt like he was the godfather of that team, you know, him and jo- Josh Smith kind of uh, started that Hawks, not dynasty, but that new era of Hawks basketball, yeah. playoff basketball. Um, and I feel like he's a lot more beloved in Atlanta. And I think he's beloved enough in Atlanta to where that'll then resonate with the rest of the league. A lot of times you got to be loved somewhere. Yeah. You know, that will hurt some. But is the Atlanta fan base really going to rock for Joe Johnson? Like they, they don't really rock for anyone. It's not a good sports fan base. Yeah, I mean, Blue Hudson's on the Hall of Fame either. Right. And he's one of their 
three, four best players. Of all time. Right. So they did. They, they didn't help Lou Hudson at all. So are they going to help Joe Johnson? That'll be the interesting question. But I don't. I don't, I don't think it'll be enough. Let's go to another guy. Let's go to Amari Stoudemire. And of course, uh, Stat had those great years in Phoenix, where at the peak of his game, he's one of the top power forwards in the league. But he had a lot of injury-riddled seasons. His time in New York was riddled with a lot of injuries after the first year. Kendall, is Amari Stoudemire a Hall of Famer? Amari Stoudemire, for me, I'm going to say... I'm going to say Amari Stoudemire is a Hall of Famer. I think that... It, I mean, it's tough because I, I look at... what I, I, I try to look at what are your prime years and... Well, I understand that Stoudemire doesn't maybe have the longevity of some guys because he didn't because of injuries largely. But when I look at his impact when he was healthy on Phoenix, a team that was contending for a championship, then early with the Knicks, where he revived that franchise for a little bit before injuries started to creep in and then kind of damaged his career. I mean, he was a top three, four power forward in the NBA. Uh, he played on one of the most explosive offenses in the league. Was arguably a household name uh, around the game of basketball. I, I I don't think it's fair to not put him in because he didn't win a championship. Because that's ultimately why he wouldn't be in. If Phoenix would have won, if that's he had he not gotten suspended and they would have beaten San Antonio and then they would have beaten Cleveland, he'd be a lock. So it's it's unfortunate that because of one thing, he's not going to get in when that's kind of like almost semantics. That's actually an interesting way to look at it because we always say, I look at it, most people look at it and say, well, if he doesn't get in, it's the injuries. But you could actually make a good point that he really only didn't get in because of that fact that he, if he doesn't get in, it's because he didn't actually win the championship. His Phoenix team got very close. And the one year where it seemed like they were definitely going to do it, a ticky-tack rule eliminated him from a massive uh, game that didn't allow them to advance. So it's a very good point. Amari, to me, is definitely uh, a Hall of Famer. I think that is surprising that people are on the fence about him. Now, he has six All-Star games, but here's the difference between like someone like Amari Stoudemire and someone like Joe Johnson. Amari Stoudemire had, what, one, two, three, four, five years where he was at least All-NBA second team. One of those years, he's All-NBA first team. When I looked at Joe Johnson's stats, Joe Johnson was, I think, All-NBA only twice in his career. So that's a massive difference in regards to what your standing was as one of the better players, not only in the league, but just at your position at loan. You He made seven All-Star games, but to only make All-NBA, the All-NBA team, actually, I, I was wrong, he only made it once in his entire career. He was All-NBA third team. Amari Stoudemire, when he was healthy, was a dominant player. Anyway, who doesn't think he wasn't dominant, you don't know anything about basketball. This guy, you talk about Steve Nash, who just got into the Hall of Fame. Part of what made him so deadly when he got to Phoenix was that pick-and-roll combination with him and Stoudemire. And it showed that, now, unfortunately, he, was, he got hurt by the time he could continue to show. But he showed that even when he left Phoenix, that when he got to New York, he was still one of the top players at his position. Um, he was never a good defender. That doesn't help his case. He never was a good rebounder. That also doesn't help his case. But as an offensive scoring machine, as an athletic freak, 
And as just an overall terror as an offensive player, I think that Amari Stoudemire is a Hall of Famer. Because I think the All-NBA, you're All-NBA that many times at the top of the league. To me, that means you're one of the best players. And at the end of the day, the Hall of Fame should be who were the best guys of their eras. Amari was clearly one of the best power forwards in his era. Therefore, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, I would, I, I, I agree with that. Here's another interesting one, Kendall. Uh, let's go to his teammate, Sean Marion, who played a lot of years next to Amari Stoudemire. Kendall, is Sean Marion a Hall of Famer? Uh, Sean Marion's tough. The Matrix, for me, is not a Hall of Famer, man. Mm. You know, I, I, I've been fairly generous, but I, I look at Marion, and I never... He he's the opposite of Stott, of of Stoudemire, where I look at him and I say he's got the longevity, he's got the ring, but do I really feel like at any point of Marion's career he was a Hall of Fame talent? I don't think so. You know, I think he was always. I mean, he was, he was a great player. I you know it'd be disrespectful to say he was a role player, but um, I never looked at him and said he was the best or second best player on a contending on a legitimately contending team. Uh, you know, you could argue he's probably the second best player on the, on the Dallas team, but very I far away. I from would there. not argue that. Yeah. And you I know, very Jason, Jason Terry was clearly the second best player to me. You think, you think Terry was the second best player, right? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then after Terry, I'd go Tyson Jones. Yeah, that's fair too. Uh, Marion obviously played a big role. Marion, yeah, well. he was not like some like scrawl, but he was a very important piece. But you were asking me as a team that guy that rooted for that team, it was Dirk, Tyson, and and JT in some kind of order, either JT or Tyson or Tyson or JT. Yeah, so um, for me, I I don't look at Marion and say that that guy's a Hall of Famer. Uh, I mean, he can make the Phoenix Ring of Honor. He can make the Dallas Ring of Honor. But uh, I I don't know if he's a Naismith guy. Yeah, and Marion's a close. Is, is I think he's closer than, than maybe the I may perceive initially. He's a like, Sean Marion. Okay, four All Star games. Okay, and he played like what a lot of years, fifteen, sixteen years. So in fifteen years, only four All Star games, only two or three All NBA third teams. But to me, Sean Marion was. So vastly underrated. Like, if he was in the Eastern Conference, like Joe Johnson was, he would have seven All Star games. This is a guy in Phoenix who, in his nine years, and that's a long time to play. And we saw him play in the beginning, and then we saw him fall out of his 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 prime. Still, in those nine years combined, average eighteen and ten. I mean, though, though that will get you in the Hall of Fame. Usually, you have eighteen and ten on a very good team. Those are your career numbers for that team. Overall in his career, he averaged about uh, uh, about 15 points, 8 rebounds. I, I, I think he's a close no for me. He's closer than I think people should give him credit for. I, I, I feel like he was an all-time great defensive player. He was a ridiculous rebounder for a small forward. Again, the guy averaged 10 rebounds for Phoenix during his time there. Uh, and he was he was an underrated scorer. But I, I, I think that if maybe he had a little more prime years after he left Phoenix, where he was still an all-star caliber player, I, I would have given him that shot. But he became such a obvious role player for so many years after that that I think he needed some more prime years to really make the case for him. So I'm going to say he's a close no. 
What about uh, Chauncey Bills, Mr. Big Shot, Kendall? Is Chauncey a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think Chauncey's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he got the championship, had the pedigree, had the reputation. Um, I, I would say he's a pretty easy one for me. Yeah, I think he is too. The career numbers won't blow you away. 15 points and 5 assists. That's not going to blow anyone away. But I think Chauncey, again, to me, it's the career numbers can sometimes be a little deceiving. To me, it's less about the career numbers and more about what kind of player were you at the prime of your career and how long was that? What Chauncey built in at the prime of his career was a five-time, was a three-time All-NBA uh, player, two years in a row, second team. One year, he made a third team. Two years in a row, he was All-NBA defensive second team. So he was an excellent defender. He was an excellent point guard at in a position that was way harder to make All-NBA than any other position during that time period. Played point guard pre post-2005 is as hard as it gets in terms of trying to be an All-NBA guy. He made it three times in that very tough era. He, he had one of the most historic NBA championships in recent memory for a team that was we thought at the time was starless to beat Kobe Bryant, Shaq, then Hall of Famers Gary Payton and Carl Malone. Uh, he was steady as the point guard. He made, uh, I believe, seven All-Star games, I'm not mistaken, I have here. Uh, yeah, I think he made seven All-Star games. Chauncey, Chauncey's, uh, you know, he's missed a big shot. He's a clutch player. I, I think that he would be a Hall of Famer for me as well. I, I think that he's um, easy for me as well. What about his teammate, Ben Wallace, Kendall? What about, do you think Big Ben deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Oh, yeah, Ben Wallace. I mean, we're talking about one of the. I mean, we're talking about the best defensive big man of our generation, in Ben Wallace, and one of the best of any generation. We talk about that championship team. He was the defensive anchor. Um, arguably, the heart and soul of that team, along with Chauncey. It's obviously you look at the numbers, and obviously offensively, he he had no impact, and won't. None of those will. will pop out but just the the defensive accolades the rebounding numbers the shot blocking numbers Ben Wallace for me uh should be an easy guy yeah I, I think the fact that Ben Wallace isn't in the whole thing yet is kind of ridiculous to be honest uh he won defense play of the year can though at one point four out of five years in a row I mean yeah that's just like that's unbelievable like that that like you know how crazy that is <laughs> to be considered the best defensive player in the NBA four out of five years. Like, that's – I don't know if that's ever happened before, if he's the only one who's ever done that. But, I mean, he's kind of like the, this era's Dennis Rodman where, like, throw out points and whatever, all that stuff, to me, is all about defense and rebounding. There's no one who did it better. This is a guy, Kendall, who this not only did he have, like – all those years as an all-NBA defensive player. But there were years, Kendall, in 2002, 03, 04, 05, and 06, which was that's four years in a row. He was all-NBA second or third team, despite being one of the worst offensive players playing in the league. They yeah. still did not just all-NBA all defensive team, all-NBA still. So this was an elite center, despite being a non-factor offensively. Ben Wallace is, is is an all-time great, and it's ridiculous he's still not in the Hall of Fame. He should be he should have been in the Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, I think well, he'll get in. I don't know what's taking him so long. They're putting Dino Raja in. Where? Why is Ben Wallace not in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> EJ, keep jumping yeah, on EJ had a huge problem with Dino Look, Raja. Look, I, I have no issues with Dino He's a Raja. Celtic legend, man. But at the same time, we shouldn't be putting in Dino Raja before Ben Wallace gets in. I'm just saying. Championship rings. I feel like they have, I play they have a reserve spot for like international guys. Someone's got to explain to me how this works. I don't quite get all of this uh, international. The whole thing, the NBA, the NBA thing is weird where they have like, they they have like awards that they that give to make, people that then makes them Hall of Famers. Yeah, essentially that are like, well, you're gonna get your speech or whatever. Like Doris Burke got in via but doesn't baseball have the same? Doesn't like baseball and football have the same thing though? Football does, but I think it's less like I, I don't know. I you still like have NBA to you still have to be NBA nice. has like five awards right. that you, they give out. And in in football, you still gotta be nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't just give it to anybody. Yeah. Like, um. What about uh, Manu Ginobili? He just retired, Kendo. You think Manu gets in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we talked about Manu before when he retired, but he's he'll he'll get in. Um, if anything, because of the whole Dino Roger rule, <laughs> you know, the, right. the international contribution. The Manu Ginobili, Oscar Schmidt. Yeah, the Yao, Yao Ming. You know, those guys. It, 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 sometimes it's less about their their statistics than it is about sometimes what they've done outside of their NBA careers that make them Hall of Famers. But, yeah, I think uh, I think Manu will fairly easily get in cause, because of what he did internationally uh, for the game of basketball, but then also, obviously, what he did in the NBA for San Antonio's first. Yeah, Manu's got four rings. I mean, that's – you one of the top players on the team, you win four rings. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue how you don't get into the Hall of Fame. So I think that he will find a way to get in. Um, the, the stats will never show that he was – it won't ever really tell the true tale how good he was because he played so many years coming off the bench or years where they were saving his minutes. But, I mean, Manu was one of the top shooting guards in the league when he was right. And uh, and when you consider the performances he had in the, on the biggest stages – I think that I agree. I would put Manu Ginobili in the Hall of Fame. Here's an interesting one, Kendall. This is, a, this is the only current player we have if Joe Johnson doesn't end up getting signed. What about Derrick Rose? Do you think Derrick Rose deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, man. Derrick Rose. I found this one an interesting proposition because if he does not get in, he'll be the first guy to ever win MVP and not make the Hall of Fame. Mm. But I'm going to say yes. I think it would be I understand if you say no. I understand all the arguments of, you know, his prime only lasted two, three years at at, at most. Um, he didn't have much of a career after the injuries. He hasn't had much of a career after the injuries. Very similar to Penny Hardaway, who haven't gotten in either. Uh, so, I, I mean, I understand all the arguments, but... It's tough for me to say a guy like Derrick Rose that was so great and an MVP caliber player, not MVP caliber, like an MVP player, not make it to the Hall of Fame. The guy has been a beyond what he's done on the court, what he's done in this for the city of Chicago in terms of basketball, what he has done in the the sneaker game with Adidas. The guy has been a, a, a he was a cultural icon for a long time. So for me to say then now Derrick Rose is not 
shouldn't be recognized solely because he had a devastating injury. It's it would be a shame. I, again, I understand. I completely understand not putting him in there, but at sometimes we have to step back and realize that we all know Derrick Rose was fairly safely going to get in had he not had not been for the injury, and he's not as if he didn't play post the injuries. He's come back and he's had a decent career. He's had he's had a career. So I, I would I would give Derrick Rose a nod. I can't put Derrick Rose in the Hall of Fame. Um, it would basically be off of just three seasons. And I would argue only one of them are undisputedly Hall of Fame worthy. It was his MVP year. The other two years where he was all-star, 20 points, 6 assists. The other year, 21, 22 points, 8 assists. That's a better year. Maybe you could argue that year is also Hall of Fame worthy. So really, okay, two years of Hall of Fame play, and then you make the Hall of Fame. After that, he was not. He never got close to being at the Hall of Fame level. So, I, it's unfortunate. It's the one of the worst injury cautionary tales we have in sports. I think maybe ever. This is a guy who looked like he could be one of the greatest point guards of all time, and in in a uh, serious injury for a guy that needs his legs and needs to be as athletic as possible to be successful, um, ruined those chances potentially. But sometimes that's how sports is. I, I can't put Derrick Rose in on two years. I, I I wouldn't be able to do it. What about uh? This is our last one, Kendall, and you specially called for this one because I, I I'll be out front. I don't quite see the case, but you're gonna try <laughs> to make it, I guess. Kendall is Stephon Marbury a Hall of Famer? All right, hear me out. I know a lot of people are probably laughing about you know Stephon Marbury being a Hall of Famer, but. I think Marbury should get in. I think Marbury, um, I understand he didn't have the consistent, like, he didn't have the, the, the long NBA career, Hall of Fame NBA career that a lot of guys typically have when they make the Hall of Fame. But I look at what Marbury did in the NBA, which was very, very impressive. You look at his career numbers, you look, at, you look at the numbers of multiple teams, whether it was New Jersey, uh, whether it was Phoenix, New York, even Minnesota. The guy was obviously a top-flight point guard in the NBA for a long time and posted the NBA career, which ended fairly uh, unceremoniously. He then turned that into becoming the greatest player in Chinese basketball history. I, I think that it would be and has helped to turn China into one of our biggest markets for basketball Mm -hmm. in what what David Stern and Adam Silver have crafted as a global game in which Asia is their second biggest market outside of North North America. So, look, I think Stephon Marbury played an integral part in the game of basketball, and I'm not saying he should get in on the same merit that Isaiah Thomas got in, or the same merit that Manny Johnson got in. But should he get, maybe get on the same merit that Yao Ming got in? That's the question that I would ask. Because the numbers line up and the contribution, I think, lines up. Marbury has Hall of Fame numbers. As crazy as that may sound to some people. I mean, dude averaged 20 you, points. You average almost 20 points in Every year for eight, like 10 years. And almost eight assists for your career. His career stats are 19 points and 7.6 assists. 
That's Hall of Fame. And that, that's with a year in Boston where he did nothing. Well, yeah, we averaged three points. <laughs> so had he not had that year, he probably would average 20 points for his career. Um, those are Hall of Fame worthy numbers. Kendall makes very good points about his contributions globally to China. It's very, I, I don't think it's very, I don't think it's very arguable. I think it's, it's inarguable, actually, that Marbury is the second most important figure in Chinese basketball behind Yao Ming. Yes. Not, it's, not, it's not even close. China's, the, China's value in the NBA's landscape cannot be ignored and cannot be minimized. So I don't want to do that because I get Marbury's worth there. But I think the NBA stuff, as great an individual talent that he was, some of the stuff was so toxic with him. And I think he's a great cautionary tale. Not cautionary tale, but great, like, redemption story. Because the stuff he talks about with mental health, um, how he's changed his life since moving over to China... It seems like Steph is really in a great place. And as someone who's a native New Yorker who heard about Stephon Marbury as a little kid when he was in high school. Um, seeing Steph have this kind of recovery from what became a toxic situation for his life in the United States is a great story. And I don't again, I don't want that to be minimized either. But we're talking about Hall of Fame still. I can't just ignore uh the stuff that happened with him in the NBA. And then what I don't talking about his stats, I'm talking about stuff uh him being a terrible teammate, him being uncoachable, some of the stuff off the court. Nothing nothing off the court that was crazy or was criminal, but you know, just enough red flags for me that I don't think that's a guy I'd want to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I think he should be in every Chinese basketball Hall of Fame imaginable. I think he should be in every New York basketball Hall of Fame imaginable. He's a New York legend the way I used to look at him. But basketball Hall of Fame, the NBA stuff, it's too much baggage there for me to put him in. I can't do it. Jason Kidd. I mean, I talked to you about Jason Kidd's baggage. Jason Kidd has massive amounts of baggage. Made it made it very awkward for me to watch. Yes, his if, if Jason Kidd played in the in this now Me Too movement, I don't know if he'd have a career. <laughs> I'm being very would, serious man. about that. I mean, I, we see what happened. Like they may have run him out of the league. You see what happened with Javari Bird from the Celtics this weekend, where his career is pretty much done. I'm telling uh, you, like, and, and that, that people, may sound, people may like, oh, really? That sounds like hyperbole. Look, and I love Jason Kidd as a basketball player. He's one of my top three or four favorite players of all time. But look at what he's been accused of in his life. Jason Kidd would have massive issues if he played in the Me Too movement. Um, so and he I has get that. the baggage as a coach. And yeah, and the, and the baggage as a coach is is. Obviously there, but I think that's a, I don't think we care about that as much because I mean Isaiah Thomas is in the Hall of Fame and <laughs> the bag he has as a coach is worth probably the even kids a coach <laughs> slash GM whatever you want to call it. So also a guy Me Too movement era wouldn't be very kind to Isaiah Thomas um, at this stage. So so yes, I get the whole stuff about well other guys may have other issues, but I think when you combine that with like well yeah, but Jason Kidd like. Led the league in assists for three years in a row. Took his team to the finals. Exceptions are made. Yeah. Right. All-time great point guard. I mean, Marbury clearly was not as good as Jason Kidd. It wasn't in the same stratosphere. So, it's different. So, I, I, I think that if Kidd was a better player, then, of, 
unfortunately, how we live. I mean, excuse me, Marvel is a better player. Unfortunately, how we look at things, things become different. How we judge who's in Hall of Fame, who's not. How we weigh those things. But weighing the the intangible character stuff that he dealt with in the NBA, I can't put him in yet. If they wanted to put him in, they put him in 30, 40 years from now, it wouldn't surprise me, honestly. And it wouldn't. I, I would not argue it. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, this is an outrage. But if I was voting, I, I couldn't put him in. Um, that's just my take, though. Kendall, let's debut this uh, this uh, this new segment we got here before we get out of here. So we have a new segment. It's called Who Was Flame and Who Was Trash? Basically, Kendall and I wanted to come up with a way where there are a lot of stories throughout the week, especially now we're getting to the sports season with, you know, baseball season heading to uh, the postseason, NBA season right around the corner. More and more sports stories will be happening week to week. I mean, we, want, we can't get to everything, but we want to find a way to somehow infuse some of these stories that we saw or, think, or players or things that we saw that we want to shout out as flame or trash. So, Kendall, I'll actually go first here with what I thought was uh, flame and what I thought was trash this week. Kendall, Kenny Stills was flames this week. Kenny Stills was flames because, A, he stood by his principles again this uh, week by kneeling for the national anthem. He did it during the preseason. He did it again for week one. I think him and his teammate, the Dolphins, are the only guys who kneeled. I'm not. I know uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, Robert Quinn, rose a fist. I think I'm not sure if anyone else did anything. But I know I'm pretty sure Stills and and, uh, and his wide receiver teammate were also were the only guys who I think kneeled on Sunday. So I I got a lot of respect for that because these guys are still uh, standing for something that they believe is an issue in this country, and they're not shying away and being fearful of the consequences where the NFL is clearly trying to um, they're clearly trying to send a message to these guys about this, what they've done over the course of the whole controversy this week, this offseason. And then he was also flamed because he then took what he did before the game and he then turned it into a great performance game time. So it wasn't just him protesting racial injustice, police brutality. He then went on on the field and caught four catches for 106 yards, a major touchdown, and a somewhat of a surprising win against the Titans, a game that lasted like 1,500 hours because of various rain delays. Um, Kane Stills had an unbelievable game. I still appreciate his efforts in trying to raise awareness about um, the issues that are impacting this country and standing by his principles in that regard. So for that reason, Kenny Stills is flames this week. But I have to say, Kendall, Sergio Ramos, umpire at the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Open as a whole, they are trash this week. The U.S. Open is trash this week because, once again, they are targeting Serena Williams with nonsense, and they ended up ruining a really great, what could have been a really great showdown between tennis's future and tennis's present slash past. Naomi Osaka from Japan won the U.S. Open Women's Final over Serena Williams, but it was marred by controversy after uh, Sergio Ramos uh, gave Serena three different rules violations, the last one being because he didn't like that Serena called him a thief. That resulted in Serena dropping an entire game in what was a deciding set in the series for Serena, and Serena was never able to recover from that, and Osaka ended up winning and left uh kind of a black mark and a stain and an asterisk on what could have been a, a, a great final and a great finish. 
as Serena seemed to be building momentum. We could have seen what happened. What could, what would the 20-year-old Japanese phenom would have done with Serena making a run? And instead, what hap- what continues to happen to Serena Williams at Kendall is that for someone who is supposed to be a trailblazer, an icon, a legend in the sport, for whatever reason, they continue to target her with nonsense, whether it's a cat suit, whether it's this thing to this week, it was she they thought she was getting coaching from the sidelines and they don't like when you call her a thief or if it's them drug testing her way more than every other competitor if they treat her like she's some like unranked rookie like she hasn't earned respect in this sport and it's getting to a point where it's just tiresome and and that for them to now impact the actual sport because of this treatment of hillary serena williams it only does the service to the fans Someone who doesn't watch tennis regularly, I was super psyched for the women's final, and it got ruined because of this nonsense by Sergio Ramos and the U.S. Open. So, Ramos, U.S. Open, you guys are trash. Yeah, for me, uh, this week, EJ, I'm going to say two foreign exports that, imports rather, that I have been uh, very uh, ahead of the curve, I'll say, ahead of the curve with on this show. Are flames and those guys are Luka Doncic and Shohei Otani. EJ, now Luka Doncic, because he hasn't done anything, granted that we've seen, but his coach Rick Carlisle, he just got in Dallas. He's been training out in Santa Barbara, uh, getting ready for the NBA season. But he arrived in Dallas this week, so he's been working out with JJ Barea and some of the other Mavs players. And Rick Carlisle, from what he's seen from Luka Doncic and only two days of seeing Doncic came out and said it very explicitly that if I were a Mavs fan, I would run out now and get season tickets because you do not want to miss this guy play this season. You'd kick yourself if you missed out on seeing Luka Doncic's rookie season. Uh, uh, Mavs legend and franchise player, for lack of a better term, Dirk Nowitzki then doubled down on those on those comments, saying Doncic is doing stuff that he's never seen for a guy his age, at his size. Said that Doncic is way better than he was at that same age, and that he's also very, very extremely excited to see what Doncic will look like this season. So uh, that is extremely, extremely interesting because um, we've obviously talked to Doncic a lot on this show and. It's rare you see coaches and players hype up their own rookies. Generally, they try to temper their, the expectations of the rookies. Generally, they're not impressed, and they 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 want to see more from these guys. But mm-hmm. uh, what we've seen out of Doncic early on, the early returns seem to be strong. And also, Shohei Otani. Generally, it would be bad news when you're when you've got when you're announced that you need Tommy John surgery and you got a torn UCL. And that was the diagnosis for Shohei Otani this week. But instead of sulking, uh, you know, shutting him down for the rest of the season and basically effectively ending their season, the Dodgers, well, not Dodgers, the LA Angels decided to throw Otani back out there. Uh, he won't pitch probably for two years, which is very unfortunate for a guy that was billed as, I build him as the Japanese Babe Ruth along with many others. But his response to this diagnosis was he came out and in his first game went four for four with two home runs. 
and in the next game then mashed another home run and subsequently won AL Player of the Week and has now very much reinserted himself into the Rookie of the Year conversation, which I think Otani should win it. I understand that he's had plenty of injuries and he doesn't play every day and his is that bats maybe not may they maybe they don't line up with some other guys. Glyber Torres is a guy that's very much in that conversation as well. But I mean, when you have a guy like Otani, and maybe this is like the Embiid conversation we had a couple years ago, where it's like, oh, Embiid only played thirty games, and I think you were the one that said that he should have won it. Yeah, and I said that it should have been Sarge. He still should have won that joint. They still. And I feel like this is similar. Where I feel like it's just the impact. I mean. Glyber Torres is also very, he's a very good player. He'll be a great player at some point. But obviously he did not have the impact on the game of baseball like Shohei Otani's had this year. Uh, Otani, not as if, and it's not like he's just a name or he's just a a brand. He's been an excellent player ever since he's come up. It's only just been because of injuries that he hasn't. He, I mean, this thing would be over. It looked like it was going to be over very early had he not gotten hurt. But if he finishes the year out the way he has, and I believe he's fourth in slugging percentage in the entire major league, or at least in the AL, I think in the entire major league, he's fourth in slugging percentage. So, I mean, the guy has been an elite guy at the plate, it feels like, all year. Um, and it does make you wonder what we've seen this week. Is this what Shohei Otani looks like when he doesn't have to worry about pitching? Mm, yeah. Which could be very, very dangerous. Uh, a lot of people are obviously very upset and very disheartened by the news as they should be because we I mean it was a very very interesting prospect to see him pitching and hitting but maybe Otani will now transition to being an elite guy at the plate and that's still a scary sight for many teams in the American League uh but my loser EJ is who's trash oh my loser who's trash you know I'm still getting used to this segment uh but who's trash is the Pittsburgh football program. Uh, Well, we talked about Nathan Peterman and Buffalo Bills. Uh, Nathan Peterman is obviously a Pittsburgh alum. You know, he's a great quarterback for Pitt not too long ago. I don't know what happened to the guy. You know, I thought he was a good player coming out of Pitt. To be honest, I thought the NFL talk coming out was a little overblown, but because I never looked at him, watched him, and said, this guy is obviously an NFL quarterback, but I thought he was a very good college quarterback, so I was like, look, I guess people are seeing the same stuff I'm seeing. And he's just completely lost it. Really, I don't think he'll ever start another NFL game in his career. I don't know why he's still on the roster. I would have cut him. Um, but it's it's really sad to see what what, what happened to Nathan Peterman. Uh, and I'm a Pitt fan. Uh, all I think I mentioned that last week. I was getting ready for this Penn State game, which happened this weekend. And I probably shouldn't have told you guys that because if you know that Penn State ultimately beat Pitt 51 to 6 in what was one of the most embarrassing losses I've had as a sports fan. <laughs> um, you know, I talked up all week how, you know, Pitt was coming for Penn State, how Penn State looked weak against Appalachian State, um, and how my guy Kenny Pickett was going to be a Heisman Trophy winner at some point. And. I could have been further from the truth on almost all of those, uh, on almost all of those points. Uh, I'm still, I'm still high on Kenny Pickett. Maybe the Heisman high, but I'm still high on Kenny Pickett. But um, 
I mean, that drubbing is the t- those are the type of losses that get you fired if you're Coach Pat Narduzzi. And it, it's it's very disheartening that this program has gotten to this point where, I mean, our quarterback, former quarterback Nate Peterman, has completely lost all hope of ever playing another NFL down. Um, the current program is losing to rivals uh, by 40 points at home on national television. And subsequently, right after, like literally like a couple of days after, the best player in the state, Joey Porter Jr., who was dad, Joey Porter, obviously, former Steelers legend, worked for the Steelers in obviously the city of Pittsburgh, had a final four of Pitt, Penn State, Miami, LSU. Where do you think he committed, EJ? Uh, I'm guessing the Lions. You'd guess right. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. You know, you have a guy from Pittsburgh that, look, he saw, I don't know if he was at the game, but I'm sure he was watching. And I, he saw he saw what happened. He's yeah, like, no way I was playing with them. Hey, I know what side I, I don't want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, I know what side I'm going to be on. I'm sure he watched the Miami LSU game, too, and probably was also like, I know what side I want to I be on here. But it clearly wasn't Pitt, and I'm sure he's one of those guys that probably wants to stay close to home. And it was, surely was not going to be Pitt. And that's what happened. So it's an overall awful week for the Pitt football program. And I don't see it getting much better with Notre Dame and UCF also on the schedule. Let's ride out with Kendall's court. Kendall, what do you got? Yeah, it talks about uh, an NBA comeback uh, in the opening of the show. And that guy, EJ, is not Ray Allen. Although Ray Allen talked about how uh, he's on the Dan Patrick show. He, Dan Patrick tried to get him to uh, to talk about how he wanted to come back, and Ray Allen was very adamant that he wouldn't come back until Dan Patrick said, if you're the Lakers and they offered you $10 million, would you consider it? He said, I would. But <laughs> very, very cordially was like, yeah, I would have to think about $10 million. But um, that is not the guy I'm talking about. The guy I'm talking about, EJ, is actually Andrew Bynum. Uh, Andrew Bynum is literally considering a comeback to the NBA very seriously enough to where he's got now footage. He's part of the Workout Warriors movement of the NBA where he's posting videos of himself working out um, with, I believe, Chris Johnson, who's a you know a very famous, not famous, but uh, well-known NBA skills trainer. And he's working out with Chris Johnson, looks in very good shape from what I can tell, uh, you know he's serious because he cut his hair. His hair is normal. Um, so <laughs> what I, I did his hair? For the people who don't remember, what did his hair look like before? It, it could have been. I mean, Google Andrew Bynum's hair, and you'll find eight different pictures of his hair looking. You'll have him. You got half braids and an afro. <laughs> you'll find the picture of him blonde with a blonde beard. You'll find the the one where he's got like the mullet, whatever the the like the coconut head. <laughs> the coconut head haircut. I mean, it, coconut. They're, 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 I don't. I don't know what to describe it as. It's like a tree. You got like but, a. You got like the what's the name? Uh, uh he's like, yo, give, let me get that uh, Ringo Star fam. Exactly. You know, like <laughs> you got a Don King in one. Is, I mean, so Bynum. The fact that he's got the normal cut hair of prime Andrew Bynum suggests that this is a serious comeback, and he's only thirty years old apparently, which. I'll be honest, I didn't know what how old Andrew Bynum when, when was. When I heard that he was coming back, I assumed he was like 38. That's crazy <laughs> that he's been out of the league this long I mean, and he's only 30 years old. You know, when you, I instinctually, instinctually, you know he's, he's 
younger than LeBron, but still, I would have guessed probably 32, something along that line. And if he was 32, I'd be like, I don't know if I want him, man. 32 with bad knees and hasn't played in a long time. But 30, and while some may say he hasn't played in a long time, I will say he's got fresh legs. Because he's a guy that knees were bothering him for a long time. I think that contributed to his downfall. Obviously very much contributed to his downfall. And But now he's has less wear and tear on his knees than a lot of guys do at the age of 30. And I, I wonder if... Heck, if I'm a team like the Celtics, I would I would take a shot at him. If you have a roster spot, you need a big man. Now the Celtics don't really need a big man, so I don't know if I would do it. But if I were if I were a team, I mean the Lakers are a team that I would look at Andrew Bynum because if he can play. Now obviously I don't think we'll get prime Andrew Bynum, but assuming he was as good as he was when he was great, I mean he's a top five or six center in the league. And that's, I mean, automatically you sign that guy up. Yeah, I mean, Bynum's age is makes him intriguing because, like, again, you could have a lot of game left at 30 years old. Yeah, his center? I mean, we're not talking, I mean, if he was a point guard, I'd be a little bit more like, yeah, you got to kind of catch up to some of these guys. I guess the issue, though, with me with Bynum is the way he used to play doesn't really fit this NBA. He's kind of a dinosaur. He doesn't. He's terrible in pick and roll. He's a plotter. Can't um, shoot. Yeah, he can't shoot threes. I'm not saying there's no use for guys like that, but, like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of use for guys like that come off the bench. Like, if that guy's, like, a starter or, like, a really good player, like, if he's in his canter, like, that guy could start or he can come off the bench So like and be, like, a real contributor. So, like... He's so good that even if he doesn't technically fit that much, his value is still there where he should be in the NBA. If you're Bynum, you're like barely in the league. I'd rather give me a young athletic guy than a guy like him. You know, like, I, but I wish him luck. Uh, I wish all guys who try to defy the odds luck. To, you know, Andrew Bynum, no one thinks he can pull this off. Uh, <laughs> so I, I would love to see him. Get it done. <laughs> so you don't think he's gonna get a, get a shot in the league? No one will sign him. I no, think he's gonna end I, up on a I, roster. I'll say this: he will not. No one will sign him in the regular season. I can't say that someone will bring him in for training camp, but no one, no, one, he will not step on the NBA court in regular season action. See, that's a little bit more. That's a little bit more broad. That's a little bit more complex. Yeah, I, I, um, I hedge a lot, but preseason, I, I, I think I can see him out there in the preseason. I don't, I don't think, know I don't think, I don't think he's even going to play in preseason. I don't think he'll ever get to that point. They may sign him, but I don't think that he'll ever actually get in the game. Because I think, because he, I mean, he had major knee surgeries. It's, it's be, I mean, I know he's seven foot two or seven foot one. So it's, it's been a like, long time since he's been having played like in like three, four years. Athleticism, but like you have to also not be like in pain. You have to be able to like also like contribute. Like it's not just, oh, I lost a step. It's like, okay, but if I told, run. if I told you, you had like three years to rehab. Now, I don't, I, I'm pretty what sure has he been doing? Yeah, I don't know if he's been. Sure he, this might be like six months of rehab. Right, exactly. Six months of getting himself I, in shape. With knowing Bynum how he was, I'm sure that's what it, it is. And that's the, probably the more alarming thing. But in my head, I'm selling myself that, oh, he hasn't played in four years, so he's going to be that much more fresh. When, I just think these NBA guys, I don't think the whole, I think the whole fresh legs thing, I think it, that's, in football, that works. In basketball, I mean. As long as you're not old, like, I think the fresh legs thing is, like, I think all these guys can still run and jump. The way right. that these guys take care of their bodies now and the training that they do, I mean, 
Let me see what LeBron's doing at age 30, what, 34 now? 33, whatever he is? 33? Yeah, 34. Um, like, he... You know, and I'm not saying everybody's like LeBron, but I think that at a certain point, guys are going to be able to perform still at a high level, regardless of, like, how old they are. So, I, I don't know if the Fresh Life thing works as much, because there aren't as many old dudes, like, contributing on a large scale in the NBA. Like, that, those days are over. Like, in the past, there used to be a lot of teams that had a lot of old guys. I think a lot of these teams now are going young. They'd rather just, like bring in new guys and then like keep trying to like try out old dudes you the difference me, this is gonna be an observation i'm seeing the difference between Bynum and like larry sanders when he kind of wanted to come back if that even ever happened i don't know but is that like Bynum was seriously almost like an elite player right where like i mean sanders was a great shot blocker but couldn't really give you anything else uh like a poor man's town white side like, this guy, almost like a rich man in the room, so well. But this guy, I mean, was give you gave you almost close to Boogie Cousins type production. And, I mean, he's a knucklehead. But could do everything you want from a old-school center. Does nothing that you want from a modern-day center. <laughs> but, right, yeah. Uh, but in terms of having a low-post game, being able to rebound at an elite level and block shots and finish at the rim and score underneath the basket. You know, they're all those things at a very high level when he's engaged. And that's also the caveat is very, it was very common for him to not be engaged. I hope you're I right. Just, Again, I, I hope, I hope that he gets the shot. I like to see and, guys. And I hope his head's in the right place. Cause I, I mean, hope so too. you know, obviously he said there's a lot of, you know, a lot of his products, we talk about his knee problems, but I think a lot of also his downfall with mental health problems as well. I would agree with that. And, yeah. you know, we, we obviously we saw his deal with the Cavs where he was, Mike Brown was calling him out for doing crazy stuff like shooting threes in practice or whatever it was he was doing. But, um, you know, he's uh, he, clearly he's had to have gotten himself in a better frame of mind to want to come back at this point, assuming it's not a money thing which I don't think it is. I mean, I, I have no way of speculating, but I feel like he's made enough money in his career where he probably didn't need it like that. But uh, at some point, you have to wonder if he just got bored. Um, Andrew Bynum has one of my all-time favorite quotes when he was asked about was he worried about being traded. He said, every NBA city has an ATM. <laughs> Big facts. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end the show. So thank you guys for listening in to this edition of the New Generation Hero Talk, a Sports Talk podcast. Be sure to check out all of our shows like Hero Talk and Imperial Broadcast on the New Generation Podcast Network on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Our Jenny Awards is up. If you guys don't know what that is, that is our award show where we give out, uh, we recognize the best that we saw in superhero television all year. I know there was a, a technical issue the last few days. We apologize for that. We have that straightened out. So the full episode is now up on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You guys want to check that out. Also, take out our, you check out our YouTube channel, New Generation Media. There should be a lot of content coming up there in the next week or so. We've already shot some new footage. We have more footage that could be coming out soon. So be on the lookout for that. That's New Generation Media on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram at New Generation Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at New Generation Pod. 
follow me on Twitter at EJ underscore Stewart and on Instagram at ActionEJ. That does it for now. We'll be back next week with more sports talk. For Kendall, I'm EJ. Peace.